You're listening to the Be So Good podcast with Colin Pierce. Colin says you are 10 times better than you think. So why not be so good they can't ignore you? Here he is, Colin Pierce. This podcast is another presentation from my successful CD series, Get to Number One in Sales and Stay There. This one is the core of the Speed Read People in a Blink course in the Colin Pierce Academy. And by the way, I want to mention you can become a member of the Academy by going to colinpierceacademy.com and you'll not only get the Speed Read People in a Blink course in total, but a whole lot of other profit-boosting and relationship-building courses. Well, the Academy community is there as well and you'll also get the twice-monthly members-only coaching calls. Whenever I take a live seminar and talk about the things we'll be discussing on this tape, I always say, you'll have a lot of fun and get plenty of laughs. And that'll apply to you as you listen to this tape. And the next thing I say will be important to you as well, because it'll put you more in control of your selling and give you more authority over the sales environment. Not only that, you need to be assured that the material we're doing has plenty of research behind it and there's an established precedent here because we've used it with many, many companies and many, many salespeople like you have absorbed it and used it and found it very satisfying. But don't worry, it won't be so complicated or hard to learn that you'll never get it. It's very simple. You'll find that it builds your relationships at home and with your friends as well as with your customers. Florence Latour is a prolific writer on the subject of human behaviour and personalities. She lives in the United States and she's written a number of books and probably the most famous is her first called Personality Plus. Florence says that the four temperaments, as she describes them, were first labelled by Hippocrates, the noted Greek philosopher and physician and the author of the Hippocratic Oath, which is taken by the medical profession over the years. As he looked at complex human problems, Hippocrates felt it might help to understand people better if he could simplify their personality traits and label them. Now, he chose to label them according to bodily fluids. And they're rather gory, so uh, I hope we don't put you off before we get too far into the tape. Hippocrates said that the sanguine or the blood person was the talker who wanted to have a lot of fun. The choleric or yellow bile person was the worker who wanted to be in control. The melancholy or the black bile person was the thinker who wanted everything perfect and the phlegmatic or the phlegm person was the balancer of life who wanted to keep peace and avoid conflict. As I said, the divisions are rather gory, but I suppose there are worse bodily fluids he could have chosen, so let's stick with those. See if you can picture this. We're standing in a clearing in a jungle. It's actually a rudimentary village and we're waiting for the villagers to come back from where they've been. We've heard that they're on a hunt, so let's peer through the bushes and see what we can see. Ah, yes, here come the noisemakers. There's a lot of singers. There's a lot of chatting and laughing. There's cheering. And right in the centre of the crowd stands a rather bull-faced, square-jawed, solid-shouldered-looking person who's carrying on his shoulders... um, What is it? Is it an antelope or a deer? Who cares what it is? It's the kill. He's been out in the forest... Hmm, Might be her. She's been out in the forest with her tribe and she's brought back a great prize. Now, here she comes or here he comes and dumps that beast right down in front of his teepee or his whirly or his tent or what have you and retires inside to sleep, nap or just take a break. Meanwhile, outside, a hive of activity is taking place. 
there are some people from the village who are immediately starting to sing or make poems about the great kill. They're telling jokes and they're starting to exaggerate the story. Why ruin the tale with facts, they say. Let's make it as colourful as we can. And they're telling those who weren't there what a great feat it was. They're saying how hard it was to stalk the animal, how hard it was to find the animal, and with what great aim the hunter took his skilful eye and shot the beast right where it needed to be shot. And they exaggerate the squealing of the animal, they exaggerate the chanting and the cheering. There are other people who've taken the beast, began to skin it, and divided into portions or they've made a rock pile and heated the rocks ready to put the beast on the fire or on the spit ready to cook it. They've laid out some palm leaves or some bushes where the people can sit down. They've laid out the rugs or the logs or the special seating stones so that when the feast takes place everybody will be in the right place. They're making sure that mothers are with children. They're making sure that everybody is staying away from the fire so they won't get burned. And they're making sure that the forest feast is the best it can be. There are some other people who are sitting down discussing how they could have found more of the beasts if only they'd taken more time. If only the hunter had let them spend a little more time out there, they could have found three or four more to kill. They're talking about the times and seasons and the weather and whether or not the weather will break so that they can go back the next day or the next week and find some more things to eat. This is basically what happens in any community whether it be a family, whether it be a church or a club or a business. There are always those who will be the hunter. There are those who will be the tracker and the strategists. There'll be those who will be the beaters and the balladists and there'll be the bearers and the servants. Hippocrates called that hunter or chief figure the choleric person. Florence Littow calls them the powerful person. He called the beater, the balladist or the popular person the sanguine personality. Florence, as I said, calls them the popular people. They're not always popular, but they certainly would like to be, and they do things that does tend to make them a little more popular than others. They're full of fun, they're full of jokes and laughing. The peaceful, the bearer, the servant, the one who enjoys doing the work, Hippocrates called the phlegmatic person. Florence, Latour, calls them peaceful people. And the tracker or the strategist, as I've described him or her, is known by Hippocrates as the melancholy person or a perfect person. These people each have very distinct characteristics and tend to choose to behave in the same kind of way rather consistently. If you'd like to be sure of your temperament style before we go much further, you could turn to about page 100 of the book Manage and Lead Without Losing Sleep. And if you haven't got that, you can order it at our website. And then you could also order 20 tests that come in a little bundle and you can share those around with folks too. The more you read and study about people from this aspect, the more you'll see that we're all a fabulous combination of most of the temperaments. Some of us, however, will have a dominant style or a style which stands out to other people no matter what circumstances we're in. If you were to come to our home, you'd find pretty well some of everything. You'd find me the choleric person, more in control, more wanting to make decisions, not always the most rational ones. You'd find another person in our house, my wife, being the bearer or servant or phlegmatic kind of person who just loves to serve, loves to entertain people with cooking but not necessarily with jokes and laughter. She leaves that to the other people in the family, the more sanguine son and uh, the more melancholy daughter. She lets those people play the piano, tell the jokes and make the faces while she likes to serve. 
You see, every family and every environment has a combination of all these people. In fact, 25% of the population break into one category or another. And then, of course, we are all combinations of bits and pieces. That's why there can never be two people alike, because we're all conditioned first by our gene pool and second by our upbringing. I'm going to have a look at each one of these people and help you to recognise them so that when you go to sell to them, you'll be much better at analysing how to approach them. You see, you can't approach everybody in the same way. You can't get a selling style which you use every time. You can't finally nail down the master technique which worked with everybody. Any salesperson who tries to tell you that they've got a technique that works every time is a liar unless it's this technique of adapting and being different every time. During this segment, we're going to be looking at the body type, how to recognise somebody just by summing up their size and their shape. We'll be looking at the clothes they wear. We'll be examining their office and even their home. We'll be having a look at their desk, the kind of books they collect, any photos you'll see in their office or their home, We'll be having a look at the style of temperament and the style of relationships they conduct. Then finally, we'll analyse the response that you ought to use when you're dealing with them, the kind of language you use in order to get them to see things your way and the language you should use to get them to trust you. Now let's establish from the outset that this is not with a view to manipulating people. The principles that I'll be showing you here are a way of getting on with people quicker and better without having to get them to stumble through all the mistakes we make. People want to like us instantly, but if we approach them in the wrong way, we set up barriers which we needn't set up. So by approaching people from an understanding of their temperament or personality style, we'll wade through a lot of the get-to-know-you stuff and drop right into conversation and communication mode. You see, the strengths and weaknesses of each of these personality types makes them quite unique, and we have to be quite unique in the way we deal with them. That hunter type, or the choleric person, is adventurous, strong-willed, self-reliant, very positive, quite sure and outspoken. They're very forceful in the things they think and say, They're quite tenacious, and they'll naturally become a leader or a chief. But in their weaknesses, they can be very bossy, quite often unsympathetic. They can be unaffectionate very proud, sometimes argumentative, a little bit nervy, tending towards the workaholic type, sometimes tactless, always domineering, intolerant and short-tempered and rash. Now, you wouldn't want to go into that kind of person and pussyfoot around with them, would you? You'd want to come right to the point. You wouldn't want to put up a proposal where you had lots and lots of detail and lots of research because they wouldn't be interested. They'd cut you to ribbons in seconds and tell you to get to the bottom line. You wouldn't want to have a lot of jokes and you wouldn't want to ask them if they're having a nice time or how their wife and kids are. It's not important to them in the business setting. We'd need to be able to understand and see that person from the outset. That's what I'm going to help you to do. With the melancholy person, that strategist, the perfect, the tracker kind of person, you'll find that they're analytical, they're self-sacrificing and considerate. In their strengths, they're also a planner, they're scheduled and they're orderly. They're very faithful, they like to make charts and they're perfect in the things they aim to do and expect to have things perfect around them. They can, on the negative side, be a little sceptical, sometimes moody and introverted. They can even be suspicious and critical and quite often pessimistic and hard to please. 
So you wouldn't want to go into those people with a proposal that had a few typos in it. They'd rip it to shreds and rip you to shreds as well. They'd feel as though you weren't worth doing business with. You also wouldn't want to make too many jokes with those people because of the way they are fairly deep and fairly thoughtful. And you certainly would want to let them know that everything you're going to do was well planned. You see, it is important to be able to analyse people, isn't it? With the phlegmatic person, you'll find you're dealing with a peaceful, submissive, sometimes controlled, reserved and very satisfied, contented kind of being. They're very tolerant, they like to listen, and they're very balanced in their outlook. But they can be slow, sometimes lazy, even sluggish. They're reluctant and not always eager to get on with the job. They can be almost seen as aimless and nonchalant. They can be indecisive and reluctant. So if you went into that kind of person and put them in a position where they had to make a decision now, you'd be most likely to lose the sale. So you'd want to be sure when you walked into their office or walked into their home or had them walk up to see you or drive the car up to do business with them, you'd want to make sure that you could read them and not push them so hard that it hurt. Because believe me, if you push them too hard, they'll get out their big stubborn stick, dig it right into the ground and tie themselves to it and they won't budge an inch. Lastly, those happy-go-lucky sanguine types are the people that are animated and playful, they're sociable, they're talkers, they're lively, they're bouncy, they're demonstrative, they're inspiring and cheerful, delightful to be with. On the weakness side, however, they can show off a bit too much, they can be scatterbrained and restless and changeable, they're a bit naive, they can be angered easily and they can be haphazard and unpredictable. So you wouldn't want to go to those people and not be sure how to read them, would you? You'd want to make sure that when you saw their office and their desk and their clothes and their body shape that you could pretty well assess them and work with them on their wavelength because their wavelength is a very special one, just like the other three. 25% of the population are like this, these sanguines, just as 25% of the population falls into each of the others. And then, of course, there are the marvellous matches and differences between the whole lot of them. So when we talk to a sanguine person... We'd want to be quite sure that we knew what we were doing. It's no good giving them a lot of detail. They won't be interested. They'll lose it and forget it. It's probably no good taking a long time to get into the relationship because they want to get to know you straight away. And at the same time, they wouldn't like it too much if you were domineering and tactless because they're very sensitive people and like to have a lot of fun. Well... You might be saying to yourself, no wonder I haven't been selling much lately. I certainly want to be number one in sales and I certainly want to exceed my budget. I'd better learn this stuff. I can tell you it's made a great deal of difference to me. Let's go back to analysing those people as they come through the jungle. They might be coming through the jungle of the foyer or they might be coming through the jungle of the traffic. They might be coming through the jungle of other customers or we might be beating our way through the jungle to go to their office or their home. Whatever. When we first see them, we need to be able to say to ourselves, I reckon this person fits this category. I'll start off using a certain approach to match them, and if that works, I'll keep going. If it doesn't, I'll quickly change tack. The choleric, the powerful, the hunter, the chief will look to us exactly like this. I picture Bob in my mind. He's a very square-headed man. He's a square-shouldered man and a bull-chested man. When he stands up straight with those big, broad shoulders of his, his chest must be four or five inches deep without him ever having to work up muscle on it. He's got a deeper voice. He's got a chin that sticks very close to his chest and he's very direct in the things he says. Oh, he's charming, but he doesn't waste a lot of words. He's friendly and he's businesslike, but he comes straight to the point. 
When he wants to book me for a seminar, he says, Colin, I want you to come on the 17th. I'll give you the full fee and I'll make sure that we're all ready for you because I don't want to waste your time. He's very matter of fact and makes sure he knows what he wants. The choleric woman as well is very straight, very much to the point. If you've done any reading about some of our Australian politicians, you'll eventually come across some articles about Carmen Lawrence. Carmen Lawrence is exactly the archetypal choleric woman. She's very straight, she's very direct, and if you read the articles, you'll find some of her staff hated her, some of her staff loved her, and that's the way it is today. She is the kind of person who can instantly divide a room, just by walking into it. That's what choleric people do. They look solid and strong. Now, you wouldn't say that these women are chubby because that'd be rude and you'd probably get your eye poked out. You wouldn't say the same thing about the choleric men, that they're fat. No, they're just more solidly built and easy to recognise from that way. If you had a look at the phlegmatic person, let me describe him and her to you. Well, the phlegmatic chap I'm thinking of is shorter. He's five foot seven or eight, an average size looking man. He's certainly rounder in the hips than his counterparts. And if he were to build up his body, he'd build up from the lower part down rather than the upper part. He's got a rounder face, uh, rounder, softer features. He's a very warm looking person. And so is she. People look at this phlegmatic or peaceful woman and they say, isn't she lovely? Now, if you're not like that, you're saying to yourself, how could somebody just exude that about them? Well, they do from their gene pool by being born phlegmatic or peaceful. They have that warm, tender, friendly, easygoing way about them and you feel as though they'd be very approachable just to look at them. Something oozes out of their appearance. And then we have the sanguine people. I'm told by those who know about this better than I that the sanguine person has a more triangular face. Well, I've looked a lot and I suppose that's true. They certainly have a less round appearance. They have a longer upper body than longer legs. They have narrower shoulders. But the striking thing about a sanguine person usually is their smile or their bright eyebrows or their animated manner. Their body type is a little harder to recognise because they tend to have a more average build. But certainly, half a minute of conversation with them, even half a second in some cases, and you'll see this person stands right out as the popular, the beater, the balladist, the storyteller, the one who makes everybody feel good. And speaking of standing out, the melancholy, the perfect, the tracker, the strategist has long legs, has long limbs, and usually doesn't have much fat on him or her. The melancholy women can be very, very straight from the shoulders right down to the knees. They just look like one long, elegant line. And the men will always have long legs and the belt line seems to be much higher up their body than it needs to be. These people stand out quite clearly with a longer oval face and the taller appearance. Well, having seen them coming and had a little bit of a guess, I see this person is more like the choleric, the melancholy, the phlegmatic or the sanguine. I think I'd better try relating to them along these lines. Before we do that, I've got to throw in here that for a long time I had trouble adjusting to all of this. I thought it was a bunch of old wives' tales and that it really didn't work at all. And then I worked with a group of people in one company who were particularly sold on the idea and the more they talked about it and the more they spread their folk legends and their folk tales, the more I saw that somewhere deep in this it had some meaning and it has helped me immensely ever since I've used it, talked about it and tried to work with it. We're going to have a look at the clothes of these people. Now clothing isn't always a good indication 
because clothing can be determined by taste and taste can also be conditioned by what your mother told you, what your wife or your husband buys for you, or what your parents or your sisters buy for you or what the store person advises you would look good for your particular colour. So clothes aren't always a great indication but they are a good way to start. I wouldn't get stuck on the clothes but certainly it's a good way to begin especially seeing it so obvious. If we saw that powerful hunter coming through the jungle with that beast on his shoulders that we described about before, he'd be dressed in power images. He'd have more feathers, he'd have a bigger headdress, he'd have a more vigorous set of bangles about him, he'd have a bigger sword or a bigger spear, it'd be decked out with more jewels or more stones, and it would really look like it was the suit of armour of a person who was in charge. That's the kind of thing you need to look for in your hunter's dress when you meet them in business. Your customer will probably look as though they're in control. Even when they're casual, these characters are always more powerfully dressed than tastefully dressed or than colourfully dressed. The men will pretty well always wear a suit and I wouldn't be surprised to find the women in a suit as well. Less in business will you see them in the flowing dress. It'll be straight lines, it'll be woolen, it'll be quality material, usually something they've paid a good lot of money for. It'll be tasteful, but it won't always be flashy. If it is flashy, there's a fair chance somebody else would have told them how to dress that way. The suits will be darker, the shoes will be darker, and there won't be much flamboyance about the clothing. Now, they do look a little bit like phlegmatic people to start with. I'm thinking of this fellow I described before with the big hips and the cuddly kind of appearance. Well... He uses a lot of muted flowing colours. He's quite happy to be seen in a cardigan. He's quite happy to be seen in his hush puppies. Clothes are not really the big issue with him. And when he does wear fancier or better cut clothes, it's because his very perfect wife has taken him to the tailor and made him buy some. It just doesn't matter with him. It's not a concern. I know another woman. I happen to be married to her. She is absolutely hopeless at choosing her own clothes. It's not really an issue. If her mother or her sister take her out shopping, she'll often infuriate the daylights out of them by spending four hours in the dress shops and coming home with nothing. One day, her mother gave her some money to buy some material for a new dress which her sister would make for her. They're both very skilful with their clothes, and so is my wife, but again, not a major issue with her. So they went all through the dress material shops... And the only colour material that Christine could find to bring home was exactly the same kind of material in the same pattern of the dress she was wearing in the dress shop. So she came home, told her mother what she'd bought, gave the material to her sister, who did her best to make something different out of the material from the style that she already owned. But she loved the material, so she was happy. Now... Often these people will need a track to run on, and as a salesperson, it mightn't be a bad idea if you were like my wife's sister and mother and actually laid out the track in front of her. They tend to be able to follow that and enjoy it quite comfortably. But as I said, back to the clothes. Muted clothes, flowing clothes, cardigans, browns, not necessarily flash or flamboyant. It doesn't really matter to them, so long as they're comfortable. Now, the sanguine person is very different. The sanguine person dresses like a peacock. They love to dress in flashy colours, brightness, notice-me kind of patterns. They'll be the ones with the flash ties. They'll be the ones with the dresses and the full-flowing regalia that makes them stand out. I was in a seminar the other day, and I often do this. I often divide the people into the four corners of the room according to their temperament style. 
I was looking at the people in the sanguine corner and it wasn't hard to find somebody who was a classic example of how these popular balladist type people dress. There she was. She was middle-aged, but she was dressed as though she were 18. It looked quite stylish and very flash. She had a full white costume on, but she had gold shoes, a gold belt, gold jewellery, must have had at least 10 chains around her neck. She had round gold earrings. She had gold rims in her glasses and a gold clip in her hair. Her hair was beautifully done up in a glorious permanent wave and she had gold rings all over her fingers. She even had a thumb ring and a pinky ring as well as a flash engagement ring, wedding ring and eternity ring. She was covered in things which said, Hi, it's me. I'm here. Let's party. It was a great-looking outfit and just ideally suited to her temperament and personality. You could put all that stuff on a phlegmatic person and it'd stick out like a sore thumb because the same kind of personality would be missing. It certainly wouldn't look too good on the choleric or the powerful person either. The whole outfit seems to need to match the personality. And so it does with the melancholy or the perfect person. Again, at one of these seminars where I'd described the temperaments and invited everybody to stand in the four corners, there she was, as straight as a die. She looked like an arrow, tall, elegant, what my mother used to call a very handsome woman. She had pinstripe pleats in her skirt, she had a striped blouse, and the whole look of her lines were long. She had long earrings, one long gold chain which hung long right down to the middle of her body. She had long, straight hair. The woman next to her had short, straight hair. You'll very rarely find a melancholy person who prefers to have a a wave in her hair, and often, naturally, they're born without waves or curls. The men in that group also stood in straight lines with straight lines down their clothes and straight ties with stripes, stripes on the shirt and pinstripes down the suit and the clothes perfectly ironed all the way down. These are the kind of people who'd go home and hang their clothes up so that the stripes hung straight, whereas the phlegmatic people would be just as glad to lay them on the floor. Melancholy people, or the perfect types, seem to have natural taste. They always look good. And although they might ask for your reassurance about whether or not it does look good, pretty well they know. They like to shop for quality. Let's have a look now at the office of these people, because that's where you'll probably do business as you call around to see them. Naturally, if you're working in some other kind of selling where people come to see you, you'll need to use the first two indicators that we've given so far and some of the others later on. But when you call in their office, some things stand right out. I called on a new manager one day. The new hunter had taken up chair in the middle of the village. And I walked in and lo and behold, instead of having a bear skin in front of him or a tiger skin tacked to the wall, sure enough, he had a gigantic painting of a tiger right behind his desk. It was as if he was out there in the middle of the hunt saying, look at what I killed. And if I could be a real hunter, I would have killed it and brought it home. These people love their big trophies. And you're selling, you need to be very observant. And there is no time more crucial for your observation skills to come into play than right at the beginning of the conversation. With this choleric hunter person, I moved the chair slightly so I could slip my briefcase in alongside my knee and I noticed his eyes went backwards and forwards to that chair and the other chair and he could see that I'd put them out of place. I'd interfered with his territory. That was a very dangerous thing to do, so I quietly slipped it back where it belonged and sat down without commenting. 
it's important that you recognise small features about these people's offices because they will sum you up very quickly and it's like two dogs sniffing each other in the street. You don't know what makes one start barking, the other start biting, but there's something that goes through the air. So it is with people when you meet them for the first time in a business setting. There won't be much emotion in this office and it'll be a fair indication you're in the presence of a powerful person. Oh, they won't necessarily bite your head off straight away, but it won't take them long to find something wrong with your presentation. It won't take them long to correct you on your facts or your figures, or it won't take them long to tell you to get to the bottom line. They do like to get right to the chase. The phlegmatic or the peaceful person's office is a bit different. The one thing that stands out in this office is that although there could be a lot of busy work going on, it's not as important as seeing you. There could be odd chairs or it could be very, very neat. It's passably neat anyway. Well, it might even be a wreck with bits and pieces left all over the place, things that they'll get around to later. Certainly, though, it's very homey. There'll be pictures of the children. There'll be little bits of artwork. It's the kind of place where there's no stress. And even though they look like they're under stress, you can't help smiling to yourself because it's nothing like the kind of stress that the choleric or powerful people put themselves under. See, this person will be stressed because they've got to meet a deadline on one job, whereas the hunter person will have be having to meet a deadline on at least four or five jobs and they were all due yesterday and they'll work all night to finish them. Don't worry about your phlegmatic person getting behind in their work. They'll just get behind in their work and say, oh, well, I probably didn't need to do it anyway. Look in next door to the sanguine person's office and you'll find yourself in the middle of a zoo. This place is full of stuff. Unframed kids' paintings pinned to the wall where the pin board is already too full. The place is geared for parties. There are signs and slogans all over the place. There are spare chairs and even a couple of lounges that they've dragged in from the back room to make sure that there was always somewhere for people to sit when they dropped in. And people are always dropping in. These people are great for a laugh, good for a chat. And their office depicts exactly that. Well, the minute you walk in, their hand will go out, their eyebrows will be raised and their smile will flash. They'll offer you a drink, coffee, water, biscuits. There'll be plenty of everything for everybody. The place is decked out just to have a good time. Sometimes these people don't even have a home. They use everybody else's office for a home. Their office is now so full they can't get in it, so they'll go around and start putting stuff in other people's offices. And they'll go around the whole building saying, has anybody seen that folder from the sales meeting yesterday? And they'll say to you, I was just looking for something and I can't find it. I think my secretary took it away. It'll always be somebody else's fault, by the way. So when you walk into that person's office, it's going to be a fun place. You can relate and thoroughly relax. Or not so in the melancholy person's office. Where this perfect tracker and strategist lives, you'll find the first thing you'll see are their collectibles. They'll have their magazines, probably Time Magazine, Bulletin or the Financial Review. Oh, yes, of course, the Financial Review, stacked neatly for the last four-month subscription. Up in the attic, there is a box labelled Financial Review Archives, and that's got the last three years collection of Finn reviews in it. And some of those articles will be catalogued and kept on computer or cards. They'll have newspapers which are stacked as well, just the dailies, but important articles will be circled or noted or cut out. Their books on their bookshelves will all be in order. They'll either be colour-coded or they'll be duly classified. There'll be no dust in this office. There'll be one spare chair, most likely, and everything will match. And if it doesn't match, they'll apologise and say, sorry about the furniture, 
I was going to get some new stuff, but we ran short of money, but it's first on my priority list. Oh, and the one thing you'll notice about the Melancholy, the Perfect, the Tracker, is that they've kept track of their progress. Yes, there are certificates all over the wall, from the first TAFE course they took, to their university degree, which they slaved over for seven years, their accountant's diploma, everything will be listed on the wall to show you that this is a person who has kept track of their own progress and appreciates research and appreciates making sure that everything has a proper reason. When you sell to that person, make sure that you give them plenty of charts and diagrams so that they can back up their emotional decision with plenty of rationality. Well, we've had a look at how they look, we've had a look at their clothes, and we've had a first glance in their office, and we're already starting to establish the relationship. We're assuming that the powerful person will need us to get to the point. The phlegmatic or peaceful person will enjoy the relationship for a few moments, as will the sanguine or the popular person. And the melancholy, the perfect, the tracker, will probably start a conversation with us himself, talking about the state of the economy. When we look at the desks of these people, we'll get yet another indication. On the choleric or the powerful person's desk, you'll see piles of work to be done and piles of work that's been done. Usually the out tray will be bigger than the in tray because they'll be giving away more work than they get. They like to make work for other people. If there's mess, it'll be temporary mess. You'll get the feeling that it hasn't been there for years. And if there is order in the room, it'll be without fastidiousness. Not too much fussiness, but just enough to maintain control. In the phlegmatic person's office, I can picture a woman's office who's phlegmatic. She's got a p- stuffed dog, stuffed cat, stuffed teddy, and lots of pictures of their dogs around the desk. It's a muck heap of current work and old cups and things procrastinated over. There's evidence sometimes when I go there that the backlog has been cleared, but it's not been cleared so meticulously as to leave no evidence that there was ever any work there. No, this is a place that can get messy quickly because there are things to procrastinate over every day. Why do them today when you can put them off to tomorrow? And why do them tomorrow when sooner or later people will forget they asked you to do them and you can just let them go altogether? These people's offices and desks reflect the friendliness and the warmth that characterises their personality so clearly. Go next door now to the sanguine person's office Well, you'll probably have to because they've come in and invited you to come and see them too. These popular beater and balladist types have got fabulous desks. You might first of all say, what desk? Oh, it's a study. It's like a bowerbird's nest. Lots of pens. Old pens that they've pinched from everybody else. Souvenir pens and souvenir pencils. You say to them, why don't you throw those pencils away? You can't use them all. Half those biros don't work anymore. And they'll tell you the story of where they got them from and why it's important to them to keep them, even though they don't work any longer. They'll have signs on the wall like, do it now, or time management is the key to management. But you'll notice that there are things written on those signs like phone numbers or directions to parties because they couldn't find a piece of paper. They scribbled on that poster on the wall instead because it was convenient. The desk, oh, it's a place to put your feet, have a chat. It's a place to put coffee cups, three, four, five, six coffee cups, all with dregs in them, some of them with cigarette ash in them. Oh, and if they're a smoker or they've had smokers in their office, there'll be three or four cigarette trays full of ash. There are computer discs all over that desk. There are borrowed books, magazines, newspapers and stuff not done. But it will be a place that you'll look in and say, somebody has a lot of fun in here. Now, before you launch into your presentation, all of this assessment has taken you about... 20 seconds so far once you get good at this, although it's taken us longer to describe it. 
Have a look at those books on the shelf. On the Cleric, the powerful person's bookshelf, you'll find books about hunting, negotiation, management, sales management, time management, and biographies of powerful people. You'll inevitably find books about American presidents and about great generals lining the shelves. The strange thing is that if you got a chance to open those books, you'd find that you were the first person that had ever done it. They've read the back covers of those books, or the fly leaves, and now they know what's in there, they're happy. Those books are symbols of power. They're symbols of hunting. They're symbols of chiefdom. When you see books like that in the office, that should be one of your final indications. You're in the presence of a powerful person who wants to get down to business. If you go into the phlegmatic person's office and look for their books, if you can find them behind the magazines, you'll find things like family planning and not much else. Maybe a bit of fishing, a few romances, magazines. Why, I wouldn't be surprised if you found the Big Boy's Bumper Cricket book from 1954 on the shelf there somewhere. These books and others will be the books that will help the person build their relationships. There'll be books like I Count, You Count. There'll be books like How to Get On With Other People, Winning Friends and Influencing People. Although it's strange that a person like this would buy those books or borrow them because they're already good at it. People like them. They like to come and talk because these are peaceful people. In the Sanguine's office, oh, you'll find quite an interesting library there. There'll be jokes, uh, quite a lot of joke books. There'll be people skills books sales skills books, there'll be time management books, quite a few of those. They'll be the most thumbed and the least acted upon. And as for magazines, probably not Time, probably not Bulletin or the Financial Review. It's more likely to be Who magazine. It's likely to be a magazine with stories and anecdotes and lots of pictures because these people like to relate to the visual. By the way, if you were to open all of their books, you'd find that these books are all signed by the authors because these people love to be noticed and they will have run up to the author at the bookstore or the seminar and said, hey, can I have a picture with you or could I have a book signed by you? These books will all be people-oriented books. And as for the melancholy, the perfect, the tracker, the strategist, well, what would you expect their books to look like? Of course, they'd have things that will help them strategize. Don't be surprised to see technical manuals, paleontology, geology, Ming Dynasty art, books of whale madrigals and Scrabble dictionaries of 17-letter words using X and Z. These people have the most intriguing book collections. Of course, they like a good yarn and they like a good novel. These people, too, are sensitive, they're artistic and they're musical. But the books they collect will be more about technical ways of doing things or studying things rather than relating to other people. Have a look at the photos now. In the Caleric's office, somewhere, if there is a photograph, it'll be an I did it shot of the family climbing Ayers Rock. Or it'll be a picture of them in the boys in a car rally. It'll be a picture of her as championship coach of her netball team. If there is a photograph, I say, because these people don't really need to have that kind of thing around them to remind them that they're competent and capable. Or well, they'd like to have it a bit more tender and a bit warmer, but they can never really bother to get around to that because that's not highest on their priority list. I was in the choleric man's office the other day. The manager was a state manager and he had some photographs of children on the desk. And I smirked to myself as I said, are they your children? Because I knew what he would answer me. He said, predictably, oh, yes, but they're all grown up now. That one's in university and that one's left home and got married. You see, the photographs were there, but they didn't need to keep them up to date. In a choleric woman's office, again, I said, 
is that little girl your little girl? She said, no, that's the mother of my grandchildren. See, the picture was 16 years old. It didn't need to be updated because they're there. They don't have to think about them or see them all the time. They know the family's there. So the photographs will be few and far between. And the photograph itself might not be in the most elegant of frames. Somebody else probably framed it and gave it as a gift. In the phlegmatic, the peaceful person's office, there'll be quite a few shots. They mightn't be framed, but the family pictures will be cuddly pictures, or the pictures of friends will be cuddly, friendly, having fun type pictures, but not necessarily having an uproarious time. There won't be pictures of being drunk, there won't be pictures of people at a wild party. And if there are no pictures, the reason they wouldn't have a picture is because they'd say, oh, I keep them in my heart, or they're on my mind. In the sanguine person's office, there'll be lots of photographs, and there'll be family pictures of people doing unusual things. There'll be good times. There'll be pictures of the club or the gang from work, the pictures from the last Christmas holidays, and the holidays before that will be pinned up. And as I say pinned, they won't be in frames. They'll just be scattered all over the wall or over the pin board. And there'll certainly be pictures of holidays and achievements, like the day we all got sunburnt together or the day we wallpapered my house. Oh, by the way... You must go around and have a look at their wallpapering because they'll have a dozen stories to tell about what a hilarious day it was the day they all got tanked and did the wallpapering in all different shapes and colours. And it'll be there, even though it's 15 years old, just as a talking point. But back to the photograph for the melancholy person, it'll usually be one. A very neat frame of a family or the melancholy person looking very neat in a neat set of clothes doing something neat, like getting an award, winning a prize or posing for a special photograph. As for the style of these people, we've pretty well gone over it. But let's now bring ourselves to the point where we're going to sell to them. If you're going to sell now to a hunter, a chief, a person whose office and style you've assessed, you'll need to get to the bottom line fairly quickly. These people like to take credit for what they do. And they sack people or get rid of them if they're disloyal or insubordinate. Frankly, they like to be worshipped. When they do something, they need the full credit for it and tend not to give much to other people. So when you're selling to these people, you need to use words like control. This will give you more control over your workplace. This will give you more control over your sales team. This will give you more control over your customer relationships. This will put you in charge. You could get this moving, Bob, by following these procedures. You see, they're afraid of losing support. They're afraid of losing their job or their status or a promotion. Remember I said never invade their space and always respect the fact that they have a wide space and the space is pretty well filled up with their own assessment of how important they are inside it. This idea of worship isn't a bad way to carry on. Think to yourself how you could get this person more self-worship. Now, for those of you who are a bit more religious, you'll find that offensive. But if you can take that in the light-hearted spirit that it's intended, you'll understand that these people really are the centre of their own universe and tend to think about how they want to control it. So use language that appeals to them in that way. Again, I say control phrases, you're in charge phrases, you could get it moving, you could get on top of this, you'll be the one responsible. Those sort of words will win the day. In the case of the phlegmatic person, the peaceful, the bearer, the servant, you need to avoid any major personal problems and you need to avoid challenging them to make major changes or major decisions because these folks are easygoing and unambitious. 
I wouldn't be surprised if you have to give them a report and then come back to them three or four times only to find they haven't read the report or the proposal. You just have to grin and bear this because these people don't like being left holding the bag. So don't rock the boat. The key issue and the key motivator for these people is that they want to help others. This is almost a fault with them because they'll help to the point of giving away their own livelihood and their own opportunities and responsibilities, but they don't mind. Now, these people aren't weak. These people are very strong and can be great leaders. I'm told, in reading one of Florence Latour's books about the United States presidents, that George Bush was one of these peaceful kinds of people. I said that in a seminar once and somebody shouted out, well, how could he start a war with the Iraqis? Well, that was just the question. How was he to start it? It bothered the daylights out of him. Instead of just pressing a button and blowing everybody up, he went into a long period of consultation. Remember, he even rang the Prime Minister of Australia and we had a tugboat and a sailing ship in the Gulf. Other nations had thousands, millions of dollars worth of hardware there that he asked their opinion in the same way that he'd asked the Prime Minister of Australia. See, they like to involve everybody, but they're not weak. They like to protect the weak. That's their great strength. So when you're selling to these people, you need to emphasise the low risk and the fact that your proposal, your product or your service will promote harmony. I certainly hope you're writing these things down because these are the key issues that will make you a success with these people. Don't try any of that harmony and low risk stuff on the powerful, the hunter person. They'll look at you through fogged glasses with steam coming out of their ears wondering what on earth is the matter with you. And at the same time, don't tell these phlegmatic people that they'll be in control and in charge because risk-taking isn't their big thing. Let's look at the sanguine people and how we want to talk with them. You'll notice that they're charming. They like to talk a lot. They're not all that serious and sometimes can be a bit naive. They'll often make wide-sweeping statements. They can be disorganised. They're very entertaining and colourful. But they're very afraid of being unpopular. So when you're with them, relax and look like you're enjoying yourself. It's no good looking at your watch or hoping that you can get to the next appointment. You'll just have to apologise and cancel it. Oh, you can use their phone. They'll be glad to. In fact, while you're doing it, they'll tell you you can ring home as well if you like, even if you're overseas. They don't mind. Now, you mustn't approach the topic directly. When you're putting a proposal or a sales item to these people, you need to let them know that it'll be a fun experience. People will love this. People will love you for buying this. This is going to give you a lot of fun. And these folks love to project into the future. So you can use all your picture painting language you can muster. Talk about the possibilities. Use the word could and would a lot. And as I said, paint a picture of how it will be for them in the future. How it'll be for their children. If you are selling insurance, paint them a picture of what it'll be like when they cash in the insurance or when their superannuation rollover fund buys them a certain kind of lifestyle. Describe the lifestyle. These folks absolutely love it. Wouldn't try that too much on the powerful person. They think that's all fluff. But the more fluff you can put into a sanguine person's proposal, the more they'll like it. When you come to selling a melancholy person, you'll find that they could argue with you. They certainly, for the first little while, will listen suspiciously and pepper you with questions. They'll pay great attention to detail. While you're talking, they'll want to read the brochure. If you hand them the proposal too early, they'll read the proposal sitting back in their chair while you're trying to get their attention. 
they will probably take a highlighter and correct your typos or your grammatical mistakes. If you ask them about their problems, don't be surprised that they'll rave on and on about their problems because they feel as though nobody understands their life. Nobody understands how they feel. So in that case, don't be late and don't be lightweight. Don't touch or invade their space. They're a bit like those choleric people. Security and research are the key issues with these folks. They're afraid of compromise. They want to be sure that this will work. So you need to use words in your presentation as well as your written proposal where you talk about this has an established precedent and then show and prove what the precedents are. If it's an approved process, you need to show who approved it and how they did it. These people, it's been said, can't see much more than an inch in front of their faces. So they can serve the future. They're not very good at projecting into the future and they don't like that fluffy kind of future talk. They want to know how it will work now. They want to be sure that when they do get to the future, it will be safe. Now, don't assume that these people aren't smart or aren't creative. They're probably the most intelligent of the whole group. Very creative, very sensitive, very aware of what would be right and what should be right. And notice that's their key thing. They want to get things right. Now you know why I started this tape the way I did. I used a sentence which would involve every kind of personality and temperament style that would be listening to this tape. And I hope you'll feel as though you've been involved and that I've been talking about you. That sentence said something like this. We're going to have a lot of fun with this tape and you'll get plenty of laughs. Not only that, it'll help you be more in control of your selling environment so that you can get moving and be at the top. It's also a well-researched tape being used by many, many people and the techniques will be proven by many organisations before you. Don't worry though, it won't be hard to learn and it will help you build relationships with all of those around you. Shall we dissect it again? I started by saying it'll be fun. And who did I get to listen and trust me? Well, the sanguine people who said, oh good, I like fun and I'm looking forward to the laughs. Then I said to the choleric people, you'll be in control and you'll be on top and it'll help you be number one. You, if you're choleric, responded to that and said, yes, I'd better listen. And then for the melancholy people, I said, don't worry about it, though. It's going to be well researched and you'll be sure that other people have used it long before you. And just to let those people who are starting to worry that they're going to have to do too much homework or listen too hard, I said, and it'll be easy. Not only that, it'll help you build relationships with other people. If you can build that kind of technique into every relationship, you'll find that you'll get on with people a lot quicker. And not only that, those you want to sell will trust you quicker and you'll probably able to get a lot more business going with them and build a far better long-term relationship so that they'll enjoy helping you make a profit while you serve them with excellence. If you'd like to go a little deeper into this topic, come to colinpierceacademy.com and become a member of the Academy and you can take the course Speed Read People in a Blink. And if you'd just like to read about it, you can go to the colinpierce.com bookshop and buy the book Manage and Lead Without Losing Sleep. You've been listening to Be So Good with Colin Pierce. For more episodes, check the playlist at colinpierce.com slash podcast. And don't forget to drop a review in the iTunes listing.